Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today I'm joined by Dr. Sean Baker, who is a strong advocate, uh, strong literally in the word, as you'll find out shortly if you don't know already, of uh, carnivore. Um, and um, it'll be really fascinating to hear his journey, and uh, I'm sure we'll all learn a lot from it. So thank you and welcome for welcome and thank you for joining us today. Yeah, Dr. Cole, thank you very much. It's a pleasure, and I'm looking forward to communicating with your audience. So thank you. Yeah, yeah, and you've got your own uh, podcast too with uh, Zach Bitter, I believe, who's a, a world class athlete in another area, which is c- quite different than yours, which is endurance running. So, and what's the name of your podcast? Well, that was the, that was called the Human Performance Outlier. So Zach and I did that for several years. We have a okay. We, it's not going anywhere. We we yeah. He's still doing it. I've got a different one, but but yeah, Zach's a great guy, incredible athlete, wonderful person. Oh, okay, good. What's what now? What is your uh, podcast? Well, our podcast falls under the Rivero moniker. This is our company that we we use to basically kind of do what you're talking about is you know getting people off drugs and getting them healthy. And so that's that's what we do. So Rivero R A V E R O. Well, great. So why don't we dive into your background a bit? Because uh, you're an orthopedic surgeon. Correct. And, um, you know, I, I'm really curious as to how you transition into what you're doing, because it's always, for me, fascinating to understand the people's journey into this, because we need so many more people to see the light in reality and find the, 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 the solutions to the fundamental reasons why people are getting sick. You know, because it's such a small percentage of physicians who who are doing that. So, what was your journey like? Yeah, well, I mean, I always had sort of a bit of a circuitous route. So when I, you know, I st- started like most of us that go into medicine, I started out, I got a biology degree, started medical school. I actually dropped out of medical school initially, went overseas to play professional rugby in New Zealand, came back and joined the military, launched nuclear bombs for about five years. Just kept playing rugby for the military until I got my, tired of my, getting my head kicked in. I mean, that's why some people may think that's the way I am now. But <laughs> so then I went back to medical school. The military paid for it. You know, spent time in Afghanistan doing a bunch of trauma surgery over there. Uh, you know, got back into practice, got out, got into private practice. And then about 10 years into it, I was mid-40s, you know, started seeing, you know, I'm, you know my health is de- declining a little bit. You know, all, all the typical things you see as you start to approach middle age. And I was not happy with that i was an athlete i was still competing i had you know won you know i've I've won multiple world championships in different sports i was training on the on the training side i was doing plenty you know there's no doubt about that I, i was exercising as much as you i think you could and so i started to play with nutrition and you know long story short um after uh you know four or five years of experimentation i you know, got into a ketogenic diet at first, noticed a profound shift in appetite regulation and the things that people talk, people talk what, about. What year was that? What year was that? That was, uh, let's see, that was probably about 2009, 2008, 2009. Okay. Early on, because that was before keto really took off. 
Yeah, I mean, it was it was still in the earlier days, I suppose. And the, the, the interesting thing for me is, you know, I noticed, well, this is really interesting and curious about my appetite. And I remember being a big advocate and walking into the office with all the nurses and medical assistants. Hey, you got to try this stuff. And I was a pretty big advocate of that. And at the same time, you know, we were operating to a lot, a lot of joint replacements on, ob- on obese patients, and they were at higher risk for complications, infections, blood clots, you know, wound healing, things like that. And so the local group of orthopedic surgeons says, you know, hey, we're not going to operate on people if their BMI is over 35, or at least we're going to pretend we're not going to, we're going to try to. And so there was a requirement, you had to get your patients under BMI 35. And, you know, there was, let me just just stop you for a moment, because some people may not understand what a BMI over 35 is, that is massive, morbid obesity. I mean, you're obese at 30, but 35 is profound. Yeah, you're 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 up there. You're definitely you're definitely at a, at a lot of uh, uh, <laughs> extra adipose. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of issues, and it's technically more difficult as a surgeon. You know, it's anytime you're operating on an obese patient, it's just more challenging technically. Um, surgeries take longer. You know, on and on and on. But so as as our options were very limited, you know, you tell people, hey, you know, I'd love to do your surgery, Mrs. Jones, but unfortunately, you need to lose forty pounds, mm-hmm. and you send them, send them off, and you know, they come back and. T- you know, a month later, they may have lost three pounds. Let's good. Keep going, keep going. And then they come back, you know, another two months later, and then they've gained 10 pounds. And then they're in your office <laughs> crying, you know, and, and, you know, you feel bad for them. So eventually you do, you would write in the chart, unable to, you know, unable to succeed at weight loss. So we, we made an exception. We do the surgery. But then as I got into it and I started noticing my stuff, I said, well, I'm going to try this with my patients. So I started, you know, suggesting these low carb ketogenic diets with my patients. Not all of them would try it. You know, many of them thought, ah, I'm not going to do that. But some of them did. And the ones that did, not only would some of them lose weight, but what was more profound for me and more interesting for me is they would come back shortly after it. Maybe they've only lost a few pounds, but they had a profound reduction in their pain. So much so that many of the patients, we ended up taking off the OR schedule. We said, hey, look, there's no reason to do a knee replacement on you if your knee doesn't hurt, right? I mean, it's just common sense. Well, that sort of thing got me thinking, and I said, well, why can't I do this for more patients? And so I started to, you know, talking about that. I remember I printed out all these flyers. This is back in the early days when there weren't a lot of resources out there. So I was printing out flyers of books and videos you could watch. I would hand out 20 a day easily because I was seeing 40, 50 patients a day, and at least 20 of them I thought could benefit from this. And that got kind of frustrating because it was a very inefficient way to sort of get this message out there. So I, I talked to the hospital administration. I said, hey, look, I'd like to spend, you know, kind of half a day once a week doing some lifestyle counseling. And it was what really sort of shocked me was their profound reluctance to do that. They flat out basically said, no, there's no. Were you, were you an employee of the hospital? I was an employee of the hospital. I was actually the head of the group. I was the head of the, head of the surgical group. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I was like, wait a minute. I'm, you know, making these people avoid operations that have potential complications and then i quickly realized it's you know it's generally about you know we need to make revenue and i was a good source of revenue because i was a very busy surgeon i was one of the busiest surgeons in the hospital but once i had that then 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 we kind of had some disagreements in philosophy and then i ended up leaving under you know there was there was a bunch of uh, legal stuff that happened that i ended up leaving you know and so went on to do what i'm doing now which was you know promoting lifestyle uh and I got to say, I'm so much happier, Dr. McCall. I mean, I, I enjoyed what I did as a surgeon, but I mean, it's it's nowhere near the, the satisfaction that I get today seeing people's lives completely change. Not only, I mean, 
we can do some wonderful things in medicine, you know, some very high technology things, but ultimately they're, they're very expensive band-aids in my view, a knee replacement, you know, you don't really cure the arthritis. I mean, you cut out the surface of the bone, you cap it with some, you know, some cobalt chrome alloy and, but the disease is still there. And, and this is the thing that would happen to me. I would do a, a knee replacement, technically a good job. Patient would be happy with it. They'd come back to me in another year with their other knee ready for surgery. And I thought that was a compliment because they trusted me. But really what I was doing was failing them. And I should have thought, hey, wait a minute. Why are you having to, Why are you having all this arthritis? Is there something we can do? And, you know, why I went into orthopedic surgery was I thought, well, I can, I can go in there and make an acute difference. I'm not doing this primary care stuff where, you know, you send patients, you tell them to take pills or non compliant you think they're non-compliant they never get better you just continually you know increasing their their medications was well, orthopedics i thought well i can just go in there and fix broken bones and replace joints well what it came what i came to find out is about 80 percent of what i was doing was just managing chronic disease and most of these you know arthritis tendonitis tendinopathy you know, uh, peripheral neuropathies, you know, carpal tunnel syndromes and whatnot was just really the orthopedic manifestations of chronic disease like everybody else is mm -hmm. getting. And once I figured that out, I was like, this is, you know, we, 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 you, know you have to change that. And so, you know, for the last now, uh, you know, well, so my dietary journey, you know, I, I, you know, went on this low carb ketogenic diet, saw these crazy, crazy wacko people doing an all meat diet. I thought, God, that's so stupid. And, but, you know, but I was like, I was morbidly curious about that. And I, I kind of just follow these guys on the social media platform. Uh, there's a Facebook group and I thought, well, this is interesting. And I just kept reading, reading, and, and just really like, I can't believe this is true. I said, I'm going to try it myself and see what, what year happens. was this? You try it. This was 2016. So this is six years okay. ago. And so I, you know, I, you know, I just said, well, I'm just going to, let's just see what happens if I just eat steak and eggs for one meal. And, you know, I didn't die. I didn't, I, nothing bad happened to me. <laughs> so then I slowly said, well, let's do it for a whole day. And then I did two days and three days and four days. And finally, towards the end of 2016, I did it for a month. And I remember I was on social media at the time. And I said, hey guys, I'm going to do this all meat diet for a month. What's going to, what am I going to die of? Because surely I'm going to die. And it was like, either you're going to get scurvy, your heart's going to, you know, mm -hmm. clog up and die, or your colon is going to fall out from lack of fiber. And, you know, none of those things happen. I mean, quite honestly, it was like, well, I feel sort of the best I've felt in, in goodness a decade or so. As an athlete, I had been, you know, training hard my whole life, competing. And somewhere, I think somewhere around oh, about age 40 or so, um, I had developed quadriceps tendonitis in my right quadriceps. Mm. And it was, it was, you know, it was enough. It just bothered me pretty regularly. It would limit me on what I could do, even though I was still training hard and I trained through it. But it was always there. And as an orthopedic surgeon, I kind of knew everything we knew to treat tendonitis. And it just didn't go away. So I go on this diet and, you know, within about two months, um, it was gone. I was like, this is, this is very curious to me. And it's, and it's, it's, been, it's been gone now for six years. And so I thought that was very, very um, strange and remarkable and interesting. And now, you know, as you dig into the literature, you can see some of the possible reasons for this. But uh, it was, it was uh, an interesting experience. And so now I've been, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm a big advocate of a carnivore diet. I don't think everybody has to do it. I don't think it's the only way. Mm -hmm. I think there's, you know, there's people that uniquely benefit from this, uh, even even if you use it for a period of time as an elimination phase, you know, three, six months, maybe a year for some people. And then many people are able to, you know, incorporate a few other things. So it's been an interesting journey. I've really enjoyed it. I've, I've seen some incredible, I'm sure as you have, just incredible, incredible life transforming uh, uh, stories over and over again. And, you know, we're now starting to see, thankfully, uh, getting some information in the literature. There's now several studies that have come out looking at this diet, all of which, which is kind of funny, every one of the studies out there 
shows it very positively. You know, there's no negative studies out there. Now, maybe some will be produced down the road, but in my view, the default answer at this point, the hypothesis is, hey, it's, it's helpful for people. And why aren't we considering it as a possibility, especially for things, autoimmune-related diseases, things specifically like Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, it seems to be just extremely powerful for those patients. And a lot of them, as you know, they're on these super expensive biologic drugs mm-hmm. and side effects. You know, there's you know, increased risk of infection, increased risk of cancer, um, not to mention the cost. I mean, it's it's just kind of bizarre how we, uh, how our medical system has gone. And, and, and I, I know you know that particularly in the last few years, a lot of people have become somewhat distrustful of, of our medical authorities. And I think for good reason. Absolutely. No question. So um, I want to dive deeper into the carnivore, but, but first I want to explore some of the things you were discussing tangentially, which I think were useful. One is the knee surgery and the timing of it, because it was right around 2009, 2010. It reminds me that there was a, a double-blind placebo-controlled multi-center trial published in the most prestigious medical journal, actually journal overall in the world, which is New England Medical Journal, that showed conclusively specifically that knee surgery in this in this epitome of scientific trials was established as the, 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 they they compared it to a uh, a placebo right an effective placebo essentially a, a, a laparoscopy not a laparoscopy um, arthroscopy right, yeah. they, they went in there and did a sham surgery there was no yeah. difference there was no difference in the knee surgeries none between the placebo group and the one that actually got the real surgery. Yeah, that was that was Bruce Mosley's study done out of Baylor University, and yeah, they, they basically, uh, you know, sent people up. It was the, the diagnosis was was uh, you know degenerative meniscal tears, and they went in there and they scoped them and did what they would normally do, trim out some of the tissue, and the other ones they just cut, made little incisions and closed them right back up. And you're right, there was no difference. That was a profoundly uh, shocking revelation. I remember a lot of the orthopedic surgeons were pulling their hair out over this. <laughs> And I remember, I remember when that came out because I was, I was, you know, I, I can remember going to journal clubs talking about this article, and it, you know, it kind of changed the indication a little bit. But really, there's still a lot of people that still, even despite that, you know, that, as you probably know, most medical procedures do not have good, solid, randomized, controlled trial to to uh, advocate their use. I mean, most things we do as doctors is kind of like, eh, we're just kind of winging it. We think it'll work, but we don't have really solid evidence between a lot of that stuff. And some of it is, you know, you know, you break your arm, yeah, it makes sense to fix it in many cases. But a lot of these things, like you mentioned, um, the evidence is not real strong for it. Yeah, and I, I applaud your decision to go into orthopedic surgery with the understanding that you had a Deep, better than decent chance of really making a difference because you, you you hit the nail on the head. The vast majority of what primary care does, and I, that's my training as a primary care physician, family practice, and virtually everything we see is related to chronic disease. I mean, I mean, we as a family physician, you're you could do OB and things, and certainly treat acute injuries and so so people up. But you know that was relatively small part of it. But with orthopedic surgery. I mean, you're still seeing the, the end results of much chronic disease, but you have a chance to really effectively go in there. Really, one of the few legitimate applications of conventional medicine is, is in trauma care. And that's where, you know, the, the, the primary discipline to address that is orthopedic surgery. So, you know, that's one of the, the, the major skill sets, that and emergency medicine that I think really are authentically needed. Obviously, a lot less than being used, but at least there's a need for that. 
Thank God. Yeah, yeah I know. To put us back I, together after these crashes. Right. If I'm in a car crash and my finger's sticking out my thigh, don't don't feed me a ribeye. I mean, that's not going to yeah, help. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there is some use for this stuff. But I mean, again, as you as you mentioned, most of this stuff, in, I think with primary care, you just don't have the tools. You're just not given the right tool set to, to deal with what you're, you're, you're That's you're, by design, as you well know. Thanks yeah, sure. to the, part of the uh, Flexner Report in 1910. Right, right. Totally by design. Totally by design. They, they, they removed the natural approaches that address the foundational causes of disease and replace it with drug therapy. And you know what they're, you know what they're transitioning to from drug therapy? Cause it isn't, a, they, they transitioned just recently into a different model because a hundred years has started to wear out. And, you know, I mean, they've, they've reached the limit because met not virtually none of their interventions address the cause. So as a result, they, you know, all they can do is treat the symptoms and, and, Typically, you're going to have side effects, which invariably can lead to chronic disability and death, premature death. And they've killed tens, hundreds of thousands of people from these drugs as a properly used drugs, not taking an overdose or, or uh, accidentally prescribed, but a, a genuinely prescribed properly. That hundred thousand people died easily. So do you know what they're transitioning to? It's a different derivative of, of the drug model. Uh, I'm not sure, Dr. McCullough. I can I can speculate. It's, I mean, there's, there's what do you some, speculate? Well, I mean, I know there's talking about manipulating our genetics. Those types of things are well, are, yeah, that's uh, part of it. But it's it's vaccines. Oh, vaccines. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, I the vaccines, against, vaccines against cancer, vaccines against heart disease, vaccines it's against it's, cholesterol uh, type things. Depression, smoking. You know, you name it. Every obesity, every ailment, no demand. They're going to vaccine for, and it's going to be probably a messenger RNA vaccine because they can spin them up quickly and there's no liability. So it's, it's just a paradigm that's, that's going to its ultimate ridiculous end and probably will end at some point, not too distant future. But what I'm, I'm particularly curious about your, um, your journey out of the hospital as an employee you know, and your experience. I mean, I, I think I'm pretty confident. I read a, that in 2019, there was a transition in the United States, that the majority of physicians were employees. They weren't in private. They weren't. They're all. They're. They didn't own their own practice. So that occurred three years ago, and um, so you were an employee at the hospital, and then you disagreed with it. And most all hospitals are just they're they're bottom line oriented. So that was a great decision. But I'm wondering when you transitioned out, did you start your own surgery center, or you know, can why didn't you walk us through what's happened in the last 13 years since you left the hospital? Well, it's been, guys, it's been, it was 2015. So what are we at? 20, oh, 15, so seven, okay. seven years ago. So basically, you know, uh, I left without any other, I didn't have a place to fall back to at that time. I mean, I, I was just sort of a little bit, I was very jaded by the system. I was, you know, a little bit, uh, uh, you know, I, I looked at maybe, you know, joining another group or doing, cause I, I, I was in the military and I practiced with some locums. So I thought about doing that for a while. And ultimately, you know, I was just, uh, sort of adamant about I want to I want to do some kind of lifestyle stuff, and you know I, without training in family practice, you know I'm not managing diabetes, I'm not managing you know congestive heart failure. That's that's just out of my purview, and so I just dove headlong into nutrition, and you know I fortunately was in a situation where I where I where you know I could I could sort of take time and uh, sort of develop this stuff, and so I partnered with somebody out of Silicon Valley who was who who had been affected. You know she basically been listening to me and follow me and 
basically cured one of our autoimmune, an autoimmune condition was very powerful. And, and so we just kind of partnered up a few years back and, you know, developed this company. We've been, you know, we've been just uh, using, you know, nutrition and we have, you know, a, a team of coaches. We've got 150 or so coaches that have been helping people. Wow. We've got, you know, tens of thousands of people we've helped now. And so we, we recently, uh, what we're doing now is we are hiring physicians and healthcare providers, you know, with this model in mind. So we're, we're having physicians that are like, you know, minded as far as philosophically, they want to get people off medications. They want to treat root causes. They're going to use nutrition and other lifestyle modalities. And so we just ended up um, raising a bunch of capital, some of it from, from venture capital. A lot of it was pro- was crowd, crowd equity funded uh, to do this. And so we're you know, that's where we're at right now. So we're in the, in the process of finalizing and converting it from coaching and nutrition to actual medical practice where we can actually legally de-prescribe and, you know, prescribe when indicated, but mostly de-prescribe. Well, that's the model. That's definitely the model that's needed because fundamentally I've, I'm a strong believer that the, fa- the foundational causes are mostly nutritional, not exclusively, certainly not exclusively, <laughs> but that's a big part of it. And the use of a physician to guide, to mentor that process is really somewhat foolish. It's not really utilizing their, their skill set as properly. So you need, you need people under you that are just as knowledgeable, but, you know, aren't going to be reimbursed at such a high level so that you can, you can offer the care affordably. Um, so that's great. You, have, you said you had 150 uh, health coaches in your system. Yeah. 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 That's right. Great. Look at the exact then, number. Somewhere in there, yeah, probably, I probably need about ten health coaches for every physician. I would think somewhere in that range, something like that, maybe even maybe even higher, depending. And you know, I think like you like you mentioned, when I was a physician, I'm out here standing handing out flyers. But the you're still a physician. Yeah, well, I know know, when I was practicing allopathic medicine, I should say, handing out flyers and hoping for the best. You know, you don't provide. You know, this is the thing we 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 do lip service to preventative care. You know, we just sit there and say, well, you should diet and exercise and blah blah blah, and we talk. about it. We never do it. We don't put any teeth in it. There's no money that's being invested in that. I mean, if you think about, you know, just go back to our COVID response. I don't know what we spent a couple trillion dollars on that. I mean, even if we had spent 10% of that on messaging and providing, I mean, you could literally feed people a healthy diet. You could afford to pay for their food <laughs> for the amount of, you know, for the amount of money. Free food, free right, food. Right. I mean, you could, I mean, you think about that. I mean, goodbyes. I had a I had a guy the other day that you know he was uh, uh, you know diagnosed with ADHD as a as a young child and then all these meds, antidepressant meds borderline personality bipolar I think it was bipolar suicidal in in and out of the ER two hundred times I mean two hundred times to the ER how much money does that cost we put him on a freaking all meat diet and he's like I'm done I don't need any of this stuff I'm you know you th- and how much does it cost to get to feed the guy ribeyes you know ten fifteen bucks a day maybe and you know how much is going to the er cheaper than almost all the drugs <laughs> right exactly so i mean you know that this i'd love to see this come out where we're just we're, we're prescribing actual food you know all you know whole food pay even even if we have to pay for it for some of these high you know because as you know mo- much of healthcare is concentrated in just a few individuals a small percentage of the people that are repeat kind of repeat offenders they call them you know they just kind of continue to go to the emergency room over and over again uh, for various reasons, so I'm psychiatric. And this isn't the interesting thing, and I'm sure you've seen this. I see such a tremendous number of people with mental health issues, and that's becoming so epidemic in this country. Every, you know, I know we have 25% of our population is now medicated for some kind of mental health disorder. Those things respond very nicely to uh, nutrition as well, as well as other things. But if you don't get the nutrition right, you know, you're just, you, here we are with the SSRIs, which you, I'm sure you saw the recent study that said that was based on total garbage, right? I mean, it's, it's just kind of crazy what we're doing. 
I couldn't agree more. Unfortunately, the likelihood of the conventional medical model adopting that or the public health authority adopting it is just essentially zero. It's, it's never going to happen because there's these interests that are totally right. opposed to it. And it's, and it's not going to be aligned. But however, on the, having said that, on the other hand, uh, you can adopt a model, which I chose to follow, and you, you followed along with that, is, is, to, is to address it from the bottom up, to offer the people who need it the choices that they need and deserve, and that will fundamentally address the cause of, of disease. So I, I'm really beyond delighted. I didn't was not aware that you had started that. So uh, if someone is interested in, in your uh, group, how would they find you? Uh, your locate what do you have a website or what's, yeah what's so the um, we, we we anticipate probably seeing 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 patients in a medical capacity you know the doctor patient relationship early 2023 that's going to be okay. revero r-e-v-e-r-o.com we think we'll be able to open in 50 states right from the get-go we've we've paired with some wow. that allow us to do that is it a brick and mortar or is it more telling no no it's all it's, it's going to be all digital i mean we're you know that's okay. most of what we was most of what we because we can scale that way you know it's just from a from a cost effectiveness it's much easier to do it digitally um you know, you know obviously somebody breaks their arm they're still going to need to go to see the, the traditional route for that but i mean for most of the chronic disease and we're going to we're going to see a wide spectrum of things you know there's a company called verta health who has specialized in diabetes care, and, and they've done that quite effectively digitally. Uh, we're gonna do that, but we're gonna expand that model to a whole host of diseases. We're gonna start with a lot of these autoimmune conditions, probably move into some of these cardiometabolic things, and probably eventually mental health. And so I think all of those things can, can be addressed very nicely with lifestyle modification. You know, again, there's still, like I said, some of these people are still gonna have, you know, to either wean off, well, as you know, deprescribing medications can be can be problematic. You know, there's sometimes mm-hmm. you have to do it in a very careful, thoughtful way. Otherwise, you can you can precipitate problems. And so, oh, 100 percent, yeah. Although so, some medicines medications could be stopped like instantly with no harm, like statins. <laughs> but the, but you just it's you many not many not most certainly, but some people who are prescribed statins are at legitimate risk for heart disease, and they may provide some benefit. I don't take that away from them, but the, the statins in no way shape or form addresses the underlying cause. So just stopping statins isn't sufficient. You have to get them on a low, I believe, linoleic acid diet and lower carbs and get their get their metabolic flexibility back into shape. So it's a process. You just don't want to stop the drugs. You need to replace it with something. So. Um, I am particularly intrigued with your commitment to exercise and your physical fitness. Um, you're quite the specimen. Some might call you a beast. You're like, what are your physical dimensions? You're like six, four, six, five. I'm six, five right now. About I wait, I was two forty-seven when I got up this morning. So two hundred forty. Oh. I'm six foot five. So I'm, I'm pretty be, good. Yeah. You could be an NFL linebacker, right? <laughs> I'm about that size. Yeah. I mean, and I, yeah. you know, like I said, when I was playing professional rugby, I was the same size I am now and, you know, pretty fast. And I've been, yeah, like I said, I, I, I know you've been doing this a long time too, but I, I started training with weights and exercise when I was about 13. So I'm soon to be 56. And so 43 years of this and yeah, I, I really, what you can do. yeah, I basically haven't taken a week off in 43 years and I just, yeah. you know, I just, I just enjoy it. It's part of, it's part of life. And it's so important as you, as you, I'm sure you're well aware, the retention of lean mass, uh, you know, muscle bone, you know, all these things are so important for our function, not only just for, you know, doing well and performing well, but it protects us from disease. It protects us from cancer and heart disease and dementia, diabetes, and on and on. And on. Basically, all the chronic diseases, you know, if you put some muscle on and maintain it, you're going you're gonna to give yourself a, a leg up on the sort of the competition, I suppose. I think you're, under, I think you're underselling it, really. Yeah, probably. <laughs> it's probably more, it's more, more important than that. So I, 
I also haven't taken a week off. And I've, since I'm older than you, I've been doing it a little longer. So I've got 55 years of exercise under my belt. Yeah. But unlike you, I made the foolish, at the time seemed wise decision, but it was retrospectively quite foolish to, of engaging in cardiovascular exercise like Zach Bitter. Mm-hmm. So I did that until about 15 years ago. So I'm relatively new to the resistance training, maybe just about 15 years, maybe a little longer, not much, but I, it is the absolute number one a uh, form of exercise I recommend for most people who are typically time restrained. So, you know, rather, I mean, you, not that you, you should not do cardio, but if you have limited time, you're going to get your best bang for the buck with resistance, bang for the buck with resistance training, no question. So um, I, I'm curious though, with your, your professional, at, being a professional athlete and having a lot of uh, traumatic brain injuries or TBIs, um, if you've gotten any specific therapy for that, or do you have any residual complications from those injuries? For me, I, I never, I was never concussed. I've never been, you know, I've never had a significant head injury, you know, despite playing rugby. I broke my nose and broke some okay. fingers. And That's like good. That. But I, but I, you know, fortunately now some people would, would question my, my mental acuity and my cognitive <laughs> movements because of what I promote. But no, I mean, I've, you know, I, I mean, I've always been very, you know, like I said, from injury pre- prevention standpoint, strength training above everything else protects you you know your joints and things like that we know strong joints are much more likely more so than stretching more so than proprioceptive exercises strength training is going to give you your biggest bang for your buck and i've always engaged in that so i've always been sort of i guess you know kind of hedging my bets towards that trying to protect pr- protect myself you know i've always trying to over prepared for competition so i didn't like you know, like um I don't know if you're familiar with the concept two rowing machine. So I've said, so so I've got three, three world records on that and six American records on that particular device. And I, because it's very painful when you're setting these records, it's a very painful thing to do to push yourself that hard. So I would overtrain myself. So when I actually came time to compete, it wasn't that bad because I didn't want to feel really bad. So I've always been kind of an over preparer when it comes to that stuff. Cause I I guess maybe I just don't like suffering. Were you a boy scout when you were growing up? I was not a Boy Scout, no, unfortunately. Because <laughs> that's their I, model, yeah. be prepared. I know, be prepared, right, exactly. All right, well, so I, I'm curious. Uh, I thought I saw you one podcast uh, doing deadlifts, and you like doing multiple sets of 500-pound deadlifts. Is it, Could have been, yeah. You, yeah, is that something that you're, you can do, right? I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I when when I was competing, and I'll, I'll put this guy, I've always been a drug-free athlete. I've never taken steroids or any of that stuff. You know, I don't take testosterone, which a lot of people are surprised at because I'm in my I'm older, but I, I just don't need it. And mm-hmm. uh, I when at my best, I deadlifted uh, 772 pounds or 350 kilos. Oh. Now this is this is when I was uh, this is while I was in my early 30s, and I was deadlifting over 700 pounds in, well into my 40s. And then I kind of got away from the single lift. You know, I just kind of transitioned. I was at that time I weighed 280 pounds, so I was a, b- a bigger guy than I was now. And then I not much. <laughs> Well, I mean, look, I was about 30, 40 pounds heavier, which, yeah. you know, it does have an, it, it, that's where I think yeah. I was probably developing some of the issues I, I, I didn't, but so, uh, then down. so now I, I rarely lift really, really heavy, but I do a lot of the higher repetition stuff. So it might be 500 pounds for 10 repetitions or I, I you know, the podcast you probably saw was maybe me and me and Stan Efferding, who's this giant bodybuilder. And we had a little deadlift contest on my 55th birthday this year and you know we put 415 pounds on the bar and we said let's see who can do the most times and i wanted to do 20 i ended up doing 22 and stan beat me with with 25 but you know stan stan's a 
you know, he's a monster of a man. So, but I was still happy to, to pretty to, good. I think that's the video I saw. Yeah. It was kind of us going back and forth, deadlifting and grunting and screaming. And it was kind of, you know, it's an interesting atmosphere. Cause you've got, you know, this guy competing with you. And then there's a guy, Andre Malinchov, who is a Russian world's strongest powerlifter ever of all time, screaming at you to go. So <laughs> very inspiring. You know, you're kind of like, I'm going to pick it up a notch right now. So that was, that was a fun time. So yeah, but I, I've been doing that for, for gosh, I started deadlifting when I was 18, 17, 18 years old. It's kind of funny. I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, what the very first time I ever deadlifted, I'd never done it before. I, I was, I think, an 18 year old kid. I was working at UPS loading trucks, and my boss, who was one year ahead of me in college, he was 19, I was 18. We had a bet, and I said, If I can do this, you got to load my shifts for me, you know, load my boxes for my shift. And he agreed to it. And so I went up there and I was 455 pounds and I picked it up and did it my first time ever deadlifting. So I was naturally built 17 years old. I think I was 18, but I, I mean, I was, I was naturally just strong in the deadlift. And so I ended up you know, putting oh, another 300 plus pounds on that thing, but that's crazy, but it was kind of funny. So the guy, his name's Jerry and he never, he never, you know, he never, you know, you know, paid his side of the bet. He didn't do what he was supposed to do. So when I wrote my book, I, I recounted that story, you know, and this is gosh, 30 some years later. And he actually read my book. <laughs> Surprisingly, I didn't know even, I hadn't heard it from the guy in years. He's a knife maker. And he sent me a message on social media. He said, Hey man, I feel so sorry about welching on the bet. Here's a, here's a knife I'm going to make for you. <laughs> yeah, that's a good story. So, um, I just want the people watching this to know this is not all about ego. Uh, Although uh, I'm really impressed with 22 reps at 415, I I could do one rep. That was it, and that was a while ago because I just decided that at my age it's not a good idea to go with these these high weights for me. So one rep at 415, but that was it. So why do it said this is not just for ego. This is for metabolic health because most people don't understand that the biggest sink of sugar in your body are your muscles. So that means that you can eat a meal that has a lot of sugar in it, I'm not suggesting that you do, but if you did, there's receptors in the outside of your muscles that just draw that in like a magnet and essentially metabolize it and convert it and use it. So if you have a lot of muscle mass, you're gonna be metabolically healthy and far resistant to diseases like diabetes and, and even obesity, but you can even be obese. And I'm sure you know some people like this, Sean, who are bodybuilders have, that are absolutely overweight, but because they have so much muscle mass, they don't get the metabolic complications because their muscles protect them from the metabolic insults. Yeah, that's a, that's the theory behind, you know, we had this, this thought of uh, metabolically healthy obese and, you know, the fact that, you know, people over a certain BMI, uh, despite being what would consider be overweight, don't have significant mortality. But what turns out when you reanalyze those data, it's the lean mass that's protecting them. So mm-hmm. unlike people with sarcopenic obesity, these are people with massive amounts of body fat, but very little mu- uh, muscle. Those people are metabolically just a disaster. But if you have a decent amount of muscle, even if you have a little bit extra body fat, it's going to give you a, a, some degree of protection. Now, like you mentioned, yeah, I don't eat a bunch of sugar, basically none. And, but I mean, you know, had I, if I do that, I mean, certainly just going for a walk and activating my muscles, it's, it'll suck all the sugar back in through both insulin and insulin, you know, independent, you know, uh, transporters. So it's kind of neat to have a little bit extra muscle. Yeah. Yeah. So I was trying to think of the chronology and hopefully you can help me here because I I believe, uh, well, there's, there's two primary physicians, at least who are the big promoters of carnivores. It's you and Paul Saladino. Uh, but I was thinking of the hist- historical, the foundings of that, and I, I, you certainly preceded Paul, but, uh, but are you one of the main physicians and, and what was your 
context with respect to another wide promoter. The other wide promoter of carnivore would be Ms. Uh, Michaela Peterson, who is Jordan Peterson's daughter, yeah. who uh, actually used that to treat a very severe, one of the most severe chronic uh, autoimmune disease that you get, which is juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. And I treated thousands, and that's not hyperbole. I literally treated thousands of patients with rheumatoid arthritis and I had like an 85% success rate. But even if within those thousands, there was only literally a, a handful, I mean, less, less than five that had JRA. So it's a devastating debilitating condition. And she had went through the through the ringer and basically almost was destroyed by all the medications and surgeries they were put, put her on. But then she used carnivore diet to, to reverse it and essentially become symptom-free. And then she convinced her father, Jordan Peterson, to go on it. And then they, they both got on Rogan and sort of popularized. And I think that was probably the beginning of the, uh, this, the, the uh, interest or the, the really peaked and exploded the interest in carnivore. So may, perhaps you can revise my chronology of that and kind of place the context, you, you Michaela and Paul and how you sequence in there. Yeah, I mean, so basically in, uh, I started doing this in 2016. I was on Rogan's podcast towards the end of 2017. Then Michaela was on, and Michaela saw that, and I was one of the ones that influenced her. Oh, you influenced Michaela. Oh, right, right. I oh, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations. So, yeah, if you look at the, the sequence, she was on about six months later, and then, of course, her father was talking about it. And obviously, he has much more reach than, than I do. And so, uh, but yeah, I mean, that's something, and Michaela will say that I was one of the ones that, that inspired her to do that. And so, and again, I was inspired by other people that most people have never heard their names and stuff like that. Guys like Charles Washington and other folks that ran this little Facebook group. So that's kind of the chronology of it. And then Paul, obviously, I'm, Paul met with me, you know, about a year after I'd been doing this and sort of asked me about a lot of questions about the diet and, you know, some of the environmental impacts. And because I, you know, I, you know, as, as an advocate of meat, you have to be versed in a lot of different topics, you know, environment, you know, animal welfare, you know, the, the, obviously the medical side of things on and on and on. So I was, I was, you know, you know, developing my, uh, sort of, uh, knowledge base on all that stuff. And I've done, and at this point, I mean, I know more about cow agriculture than <laughs> the average person should probably perhaps. So I, I'm curious as to the details of what your implementation of carnivore is, because Paul seems to have diverged a bit away from that and has integrated mm -hmm. things like honey and fruit right. and adding more carbohydrates, maybe 150, 200, 250 grams a day of carbs, which I think is probably, in my view, it seems to be a little healthier, but I'm wondering, I don't, I don't think you've done that. I think you're still strict carnivore. Right. Yeah. I'm still pretty much steak and eggs. I mean, you know, every once in a while I'll have something. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not sort it's not a religion to me it's not like a vegan diet where you know oh my gosh i had a i had an mm -hmm. egg or i'm cast, cast out of the you know I'm apostate now um but i mean generally i mean i just feel better i mean maybe it's because i'm older you know and i just feel better without without the other stuff i mean legitimately i feel best when i'm just eating a bunch of red meat i know it sounds strange but i mean i'm i don't really you know my goal is to be healthy my goal is not to have heart disease or cancer, those mm. types of things. I don't do this because I have a death wish or I'm a masochist. I mean, that's generally how I feel. And I think, you know, in contrast, I think certainly, I don't think everybody needs to be on a carnivore diet. I think some people can definitely benefit. And I think a period of strict is can be beneficial. Some people choose to continue to do that. I don't see, for most people, a big problem. I know that's controversial, but I just, I just, I just have seen tens of thousands of people just do this indefinitely. I know there's a thought that low carb low carbohydrate diets in general are unsustainable and yet you've got people that have been doing it 25 30 years going wait a minute <laughs> why, why is that and i um you know i think for some people uh and this is where i would disagree with paul 
Um, if you tell people you must eat fruits and honey to, um, to be optimized or, or healthy, I, I don't think that's, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think there's a lot of people that, that disprove that. And I see that every day. Again, I just, I, I, I know it's there's your experience. That's your experience. That's my, that's my observation. I, you know, like I said, I know there's theory and you can, you can talk about all these mechanistic type things and we're always limited. As you know, it's so much more complicated that you can find any, a mechanism to show basically anything. If you look, if you, if you focus in enough and then there's like, what about the big picture? And so I just, I tend to go by what's going on results wise. And, you know, we, I've, I've been, I've collected data. I've got data on 12,000 people that we did on the data, on the, on the diet. We've got, you know, Harvard university has now done a study. 2,000 people. Now they're criticizing it because it's, you know, observational and we haven't done the randomized interventional trials. And those are coming. We're seeing that uh, as, as time goes by, as more and more people and more and more physicians, quite honestly, are implementing in their practice. I mean, there was just another paper that just came out uh, yesterday on uh, hydrogenitis uh, suprativa. You know, it was a case study. Again, the 43 days carnivore diet, boom, gone, which is something that can mm. A really problematic issue for people and so we're seeing which is, these, which is something similar to acne it's a derivative of acne yeah i mean it's and you get these horrible just you know horrible painful lesions typically in the axilla and the groin and mm-hmm. a lot of times it requires surgery to cut the stuff out mm-hmm. and you know it's 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 not it's it's a very miserable existence when you have that yeah the reason i mentioned acne is that probably this carnivore diet would help acne tremendously it does yeah it does and you know the interesting thing is i think just to be as, as objective as I can, I think dairy for a lot of people can 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 trigger it for some for some reason. So I think you know I know a lot of people say, well, you're just a shill for the meat industry, and I've I've been very critical of dairy in some cases. And you know, like I said, it just it just depends. But yeah, there's yeah, uh, it can be a problem. A sure. Right. So um, one of the ways that it may be helpful, and I'm wondering how how much you've explored this, is uh, you're essentially removing almost all sources of oxalates and oxalates are these little crystals that are typically in plant foods and they can cause loads of problems. They can even kill you. They have killed people before if you have too many oxalates. So I'm wondering what your experience and observation has been with the removal of oxalates. And actually my understanding from Sally Norton, who's one of the leaders in this is that people who go on a carnivore diet are somewhat at risk for developing an exacerbation of oxalate symptoms because they're detoxifying so rapidly and they're excreting these and they precipitate a, a, a flare. Yeah, I've talked to Sally many, many, many times. I've met her personally, and and she's a she is a tremendous advocate for you know oxalate toxicity. And you know, you know, it's like it's kind of funny. We all wear these filters, and you always you know whatever you look, you can see something. It must be that because I've seen it so many times. And I and I have no doubt that there that that it does contribute to issues for people. And you're right. You know, I think when you when you go on this very restrictive diet. Assuming you have oxalate crystals and they, they you know, then the, the diffusion gradient changes and they go back into solution and then they land somewhere else and you can precipitate these issues. I've seen that, or I think I've seen that, um, you know, she admits it's tough to detect because it's very difficult to, to detect, you know, hyperoxylemia or oxalatemia rather. Um, you can detect it in the urine sometimes, but, you know, I think it happens uh, you know, not as frequently in the carnivore diet as some people might suggest. I mean, it's, it's, it's probably, you know, 5% of the times you might have somebody dealing with that. And, you know, you're right, you know, sometimes adding a small amount of oxalate or sometimes just adding carbohydrates in general can be helpful. So it's not that, you know, again, this isn't one size fits all, sure. but I think it's a big part of the picture. And I think once you just, like you said, you remove, I mean, the American diet is, I mean, what, 99% of it, 90% of it is complete garbage. I mean, we shouldn't be eating any of that stuff. Probably so over that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, you're I'm, not sure, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the uh, recent study that came out in July in the Journal of American Cardiology, which is a derivative of the 
earlier study was that evaluated the NHANES data that showed how much, what the percentage of people in the United States that were metabolically inflexible. Oh yeah, study, yeah, yeah. It was eighty-eight percent. It was the older right. study. The newer study that was published in July was ninety-three percent, and that was still on two thousand eighteen data. So it's still four years old. So it's probably at least ninety-five percent. The which one is nineteen out of twenty people in the country. Nineteen out of twenty. Yeah, I don't doubt it. I mean, when you look around, you know, it's just like I, I look around and I go to the grocery store and I kind of play as fat, fit, or frail. And it's either most people are fat, the ones that aren't are mostly frail. There's very few fit people there. But I guess the one criticism I'd have of that data is I think they're using cholesterol as one of their metrics, you know, so high cholesterol. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So you'd have to say, well, how much of that is, you know, I mean, again, I, I, I don't ignore cholesterol and don't think high cholesterol has no bearing. But again, I think it's put in context. I think you saw the, the women's health study in 2021 where they listed the risk factors for cardiovascular disease and diabetes was by far and away the biggest risk factor. And, you know, LDL cholesterol, ApoB were kind of minor, but they were still risk factors, but they were kind of minor players when you compared it to diabetes, metabolic syndrome, obesity, uh, uh, hypertension, things like that, which tend to have a bigger effect. Well, let's address cholesterol because that's clearly one of the, the uh, criticisms that are hurled at those who are advocating uh, carnivore. So specific, specifically with Paul Saldino, I mean, he's, I don't know if he has a snip or what, but on a carnivore diet, even with the fruit and honey, he's still sporting, I think LDLs three or 400. I mean, some ridiculously crazy number, but uh, every other assay that you can use to assess risk for heart disease, such as the uh, total uh, coronary, coronary artery calcium score is like zero. Yeah. Uh, and it's oxidized LDL is like undetectable. So why don't you discuss that concern and your perspective? And maybe if you're willing to share your cholesterol numbers. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, I had a coronary artery, artery calcium scan as well as zero, you know, and so I, and, and my cholesterol, it, it run my total cholesterol runs anywhere between 180 and 250 somewhere in there yeah, you know, so it, it varies it's it's not static it changes day to day and so it's somewhere in that so it's not ridiculously high but it's certainly not low i mean most people say well you need to be on a statin eat a low-fat diet based on where i'm at and then of course i look at all my other risk factors and you know uh everything's you know inflammatory numbers blood pressure you know obviously body composition cardiovascular i mean i'm setting world records as an athlete you don't do that with a bad cardiovascular system i mean it's kind of kind of crazy but i you know i will say when somebody comes to me and said hey doc my, i want to convert my my ldl cholesterol shot up to 300 and before it was 200 mm -hmm. i don't tell people to ignore that i mean i think it's just something that you have to get more information whereas most physicians would say hey stop immediately go on a statin i mean that's 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 the sort of the reflex answer and i think um, I think you just have to be more, um, you know, circumspect about this. You look at nuance. I think the imaging, because one of the things we, you know, you talk about is that, you know, Ape, you know, the, the current rallying cry is ApoB. If ApoB is elevated, it doesn't matter how many particles, the size of the particles. You know, it's, well, it's a number of ApoB that you're exposed to over time, and that's going to lead to a damage. Now, there's another part of that equation. You know, when it get when it, when you know, if you believe the model where you know LDL cholesterol is causal. And it is the principal reason it gets, you know, uh, pushed under the, you know, endothelium of the blood vessels. Um, there, there's two sides of that equation, and one of it is is a receptor, or rather, the, rather the, the 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 blood vessel itself, and how quote unquote sticky it is, and that has to depend on proteoglycan content and these glucose glucosaminoglycan tails, and that's under modification. And what what modifies it? Well, we know like diabetes drugs, blood pressure meds make the vessels more sticky. So if you're like, I've got more LDL cholesterol, but my vessels aren't very sticky, does that cancel each other out? And the question is, I don't know, but how could you find that out? Well, I think imaging. 
And I think that's the way I, I typically approach it. If a person's of appropriate age. Now, a 20-year-old doesn't need to be getting a CAC scan or anything like that. But if you're 40-plus and you're concerned about this and your LDL is high and you're like, I don't want to change because I feel so good. No, we get, we get this argument. I've seen this before. I have people that literally were miserable. Their life was a living hell. They changed their diet and they've got, a, for the first time in decades, they've got a normal quality of life. They're so much happier. And you said, hey, you're, you've increased your risk for cardiovascular disease 20%. And, and most of us say, I don't care. I don't even care at this point because I'm not going back to that. So if you're in that situation and you don't want to change for whatever reason, I don't know that you need to, it's up to you, um, then get some imaging and just get serial imaging. You know, you can get carotid Doppler studies. You can get, you know, obviously if you want to go real, real exciting, you can get angiography, which more expensive tends to be a little more invasive. But there's ways to monitor this. And I think rather than just blanketly saying that uh, I'm going to, start eating a low fat diet and you know what we see the failure we've seen you've seen 50 years of this failure you know since since 77 yeah, yeah. whatever uh well actually know. the 50s and ansel keys well yeah, yeah ansel keys when dwight eisenhower had his heart attack and people yeah, first mentioned he was, he was early 50s they, I, I didn't realize that he was smoking four packs of cigarettes a day and you're like well one, oh one. yeah they they, they <laughs> conveniently decided to exclude that data right sure. yeah. but interesting keys I mean, we look at it now and, and laugh at it, this low fat diet that he promoted, but it really wasn't low fat because they were substituting seed oils, PUFAs, omega-6 fat. So in some ways he was right. He was vilifying saturated fat. He was just vilifying the wrong type of fat. So the, the correct fat to vilify was omega-6 fat. The, the very PUFAs he was recommending as a substitute for the saturated fat, which is probably the genesis of all the pathology it was generated. So I'm wondering... If you've uh, taken a deep dive or focus at all, or use that to, uh, to help people understand some of the benefits of carnivore. And the, the reason it's a benefit is because when you go carnivore, unless you're eating a lot of chicken and pork, you're going to get a really low omega-6 fat diet. Yeah, that's, that's generally true. And, and I, you know, to be fair, I don't eat a lot of chicken or pork. I really, I think in the last six years, I've had chicken like two times and pork. Perfect. Pork. Perfect. I mean, it's mostly red meat, but I think, you know, the thing with the polyunsaturated fatty acids and the seed oils, I mean, clearly, clearly, clearly that's not part of the natural human diet. I mean, they've only, they were only invented in the late 18, 1800. So clearly I don't care what you argue. We were eating a thousand years ago or 10,000 years ago, 50,000, whenever you think humans arrived. Um, 300,000 years ago, 3 million years ago, whatever your definition is, we were not eating these things. They are not part of the natural human diet. Um, I think the other thing that's a big confounder here is where are these things usually found? They're almost, almost with rare exception found in, in highly processed foods. So it's, it's, it's a proxy measure for how much processed food you're eating. So either way, eliminating it's going to get either the, the poof itself out of your diet to a large degree. Um, you know, I mean, we need, you know, as, as you know, polyunsaturated fatty acids, there's some, some degree of essentiality to it, but it's a very well, low. Going, you aren't going down to zero. <laughs> right. You're not going down to zero, but I mean, just by removing that ingredient, you are removing the processed garbage out of your diet one way or the other. It's helping you. So, I mean, you know, and because there's obviously, you know, people like Walter Willard are saying, well, it lowers your LDL cholesterol. And there's some studies that suggest substituting polyunsaturated monosaturated for, for saturated fat has a LDL lowering effect, which again is debatable if it's actually even helpful. Uh, there's a lot of study, you know, there's a lot of studies out there coming out and there was just a recent study published about a month ago. Uh, talked about the boogeyman of saturated fat. I can't remember the exact title, but it basically said it, it, the data says, after examining, it was a systematic review, and it said after examining all the RCTs and observational studies and cohort studies, we see no evidence to show that saturated fat is an issue, particularly when it comes from whole foods. And the other interesting thing with saturated fat is, and I saw this data, 
in the American diet, most of the saturated fat we consume is in the, in the, in the form of junk food, cakes, pastries, and other things. Mm-hmm. Whereas it coming from meat is only, I think red meat is only about 3% of our diet comes from saturated fat. Our saturated fat is only comes from 3% of our I diet. Not your diet. <laughs> well, my diet, yeah, my diet is all, you know, basically all meat. So I get all my saturated fat from meat. And, you know, so far, you know, knock on wood here, you know, no, no bad result. Well, the saturated fat and processed foods is also accompanied by the omega-6 oils. Right. And, you know, people, many physicians, even well-intentioned, nutri- supposedly nutritionally oriented physicians or integrated physicians, uh, are, had this strong focus on vilifying the sugar as being this pernicious evil. Well, you and I both well know that you can have sugar, especially if a lot of muscles, and it is it's only going to affect your, your metabolism for a really short time, hours, a day at the most. And that's it. But when you have these mega-six fats, their half-life is two years, and they stick around for five to seven years before you get them out of your cells. So it, it is, it's a ticking time bomb for sure. No question about it. Yeah, interestingly, you know, as you probably have seen, there's data out there showing that our human body fat composition has changed over the year. We have this higher. Oh, population. yes. <laughs> and the interesting thing, I, and I never thought about this, but I remember when I was operating on people, particularly obese people, you know, you'd make incision, cut into them. Of course, mm-hmm. you got this big layer of you know, subcutaneous fats you have to cut through to get down to the muscle so you can do your surgery. And I remember seeing that some people had really yellow fat and some people had this white crumbly look like cottage cheese fat. And I just, I, I never thought why that is, but probably their lifetime diet had dramatically impacted the, the quality, uh, the quality of their fat. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure if I'd stuck it under the microscope, I'd probably see the ones with the, the little, you know, sort of, it looked like, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, uh, tapioca pudding type fat, you know, sure, white and sure. crumbly. And I wonder if that was, you know, due to the, due to the, well, uh, the I would speculate problem. that it is. And the percentage of linoleic acid in a fat biopsy prior to 1870 was about one to 2%. And my guess is if you were to do a fat biopsy now, you'd be in that range because you've been carnivore for Basically, you just have you don't you're not eating linoleic acid, and it takes that long to get it out of your cell membrane. So you're there, but I'm, I'm you know, and, and now I think the range is 25, 20, 25 percent, 30 percent, or even more in some people. That's instead of one to two percent. I mean, it's literally ten to twenty times higher than it was supposed to be. Why is this an issue? Well, this this kind of ties back into the heart disease, which is the number one cause of death. So that's a good area to discuss. It's the one that triggered Ansel Keys and the concern for shifting onto the low fat diet. Uh, so, you know, in, with, with Paul, he actually, I don't know if you measure this in your practice or, or will be do, doing it with your new, new health system, but it's the oxidized LDL that seems to be the issue, not the ApoB, but the oxidized LDL. It be, and the reason it gets oxidized is because it's LDL as fatty acids. And, and if it's clogged up with this omega-6 fat, that's highly perishable and oxidizable and damaged to these, uh, oxidative, linoleic acid metabolites like 4-HNE, then it's going to cause the damage in the tissue and precipitate heart disease. So I'm wondering if you ever look at oxidized LDL as another marker that you can uh, sort of assuage or uh, basically calm the fears that some of these people have that are transitioning onto carnivore diets. Yeah. I mean, obviously that's not a commonly acquired test. I mean, as you know, the normal lipid panel is you know total oh definitely it's, total, it's definitely like, a specialty right. so i we i've seen a few people that have that have, pursued, that have been concerned enough to pursue that and generally it shows a favorable oxidized now the now the criticism that you know the lipidologists will say well the number one place for oxidation is ldl is when it gets trapped in the endothelial layer and that's where it becomes oxidized and so i've seen that 
sort of counter argument well, it's made. Not in the serum. It's not in the serum you're saying. Well, they're saying that well, the, the primary place of oxidation occurs when it starts getting trapped and you see this right. this, this building up of oxidation. And, and uh, so, you know, I, I, again, I think that there's definitely more to it with regard to, you know, cholesterol, what's going on there. I think oxidation, glycation, different, different subfractions, lipoprotein little a is, is also being posited as, as, as uniquely damaging. Interestingly, when I assessed my lipoprotein little a, it was two, which is about as low as, as low as it possibly comes. And a lot of people tell you it's genetic, but there's studies out there showing that saturated fat will actually drive lipoprotein little a down, which is, you know, kind of interesting because again, I eat, eat a lot of saturated fat. So, um, I, you know, I think I think there's more to come. As you're probably aware, they've got him, Dave Feldman. They're doing some research on oh, these. Oh yeah, yeah, sure. Mass looking, I want to interview him, but he's 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 declined until he finishes his research. Okay, well, I mean, fair enough. I mean, at least we'll have something more to talk. But he, he's he's li- he's given out some preliminary data, which suggests I think four years of data. People and and the critics will say well, that's not long enough. It takes 20, 30 years, and so you know, just to kick the can down the road. But they're showing people with these tremendously high LDL cholesterols in the three four hundred range for four years. And they have much lower levels of atherosclerosis in the general population, which is which is curious. I mean, it's interesting uh, to see that, um, and we'll see what happens down the road. As yeah, a, I think he calls that subgroup the lean mass hyperresponders. Right, you're right, exactly. There's a there's a diagnostic criteria: high LDL cholesterol, HDL above, I think eighty, and I think triglycerides below. I don't know. 70 or something like that. I can't remember the exact criteria. So you had mentioned glycation. And for those who aren't aware of that, it's simply attaching a glucose molecule to like a protein yeah. uh, molecule. So, and the classic example of that would be hemoglobin A1A or glycosylated hemoglobin, which is a measure of glucose control over three months when, when they measure the red blood cells that are glycated. So the reason I mentioned this is because this is another really important benefit of, of, t- of eating a lot of meat, red meat specifically, is that there is a molecule called carnosine. Yeah, carnosine. carnosine is a sacrificial sink for ages or, or even glycolated uh, lipids. So in other words, the glucose will attach to the carnosine and, and sacrifice itself and it preserved these molecules. And you're getting a heck of a lot of carnosine. In fact, this is one of the dangers of going vegan or not having uh, animal foods is that you're going to have very low carnosine levels. There's other reasons too, but carnosine is a big one. Yeah, there's, uh, and it's interesting, there's a, there's a study out there called, talking about carnosine as a, as a longevity molecule. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Animal studies, and it, it particularly affects the central nervous system that way. As you know, our central nervous system is mostly fat. There's a lot of fat in our central nervous system, particularly our brain is something like 25% of the cholesterol in our body re- resides in just our brain. And so, yeah, carnosine has been a wonderful tool. And this is, I think this is the, the problem when we talk about, you know, food, we, we, we break it down into, into different contents, you know, oh my God, meat has saturated fat. Uh, oh my God, cooking your meat is going to produce some, some ages, some advanced glycation end products, and therefore that's going to destroy it. But then you say, well, what about all the carnosine, the carnitine, the the taurine, the creatine, all these things that counteract these things that come with that. And they, they you know, because we don't just eat uh, you know, we just don't eat saturated fat by itself. It comes with all these other things. We don't just eat, you know, ages by themselves. Uh, so there's these de- detoxification. And I think the interesting thing, you know, I, I, you know, when we look at, you know, advanced glycation end products, it's kind of like this Maillard reaction that, you know, when you brown the steak or you brown bread, you, know, you get the sugar sort of melding with the, with the proteins under heat. So when I used to stick uh, scopes in, in, in people's knees, if I, if I, if I scoped a kid, you know, I had a 15 year old kid, 
their knee is pristine white. It looks just like the like the new the newly fallen snow. You get there in a fifty year old, and the knee is brown and yellow, and it looks like they've been smoking. Literally, it looks like their knee is covered in this yellow. And I think it's a Mayard reaction. I think it's literally glycated. Uh, cartilage and glycated meniscal tissue and it's friable and it breaks really easy and crumbles Mm -hmm. and i think that you know again exposure to high levels of glucose through you know maybe excess carbohydrate or excess calories in many cases and not having something to counter that and that's why i think that the carnosine like you mentioned is it is a deglycating agent which is you know is just a wonderful wonderful thing the other thing i wanted to mention is you mentioned the, the the duration of this um oxidized peroxidized fat in your body hanging around mm-hmm. for two three four years interestingly a lot of people that go carnivore they seem to see benefits that occur up to three years out because i think they're continuing to get rid of this mm-hmm. garbage from their body and so they notice it get better and better and better and so i'm six years in and now i don't know that i get dramatically better but i just feel good all the time and i'm you know i'm able to perform and train and do those things so i'm not i'm not seeing that decline like other people and you know i mean you know, at your age and my age, you look around and you see our, our cohort, our peers, <laughs> we're like, oh my God, everybody's everybody's old and dead, you know, or near dead. They're waiting for death. And you're like, wait a minute, why am I not, why am I not doing that? Well, you know the answer to that. And even those that do have the intelligence to live, A, close enough to the beach and B, walk on the beach in the right yep. time, you see their bellies and it's uh, not straight <laughs> flat. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true for sure. Yeah, so, we, we, I, I'm particularly curious, uh, and I'm sure many people, other people are, as to the quantity of red meat that you're eating. So, um, <laughs> and then, you know, I, I, I would love, I would absolutely love to, to try what you're doing. And fortunately, I made some mistakes early in my career. The primary one is not understanding that there are th- such things as biological dentists that can remove mercury from your mouth safely because I was not. My parents were just the standard American diet and they you know, had plenty of desserts and half of my mouth was silver fillings when I was, by the time I graduated school. So I had, a, I, I, I saw the light, had my mercury amalgam fillings removed shortly after I, well, maybe 10 years out of, out of med school. And that caused kidney damage. I have, I'm basically have kidney impairment. So when I eat a lot of meat, and I want you to address this too, my car, my creatinine levels go up high. Yep. I mean, they yep. even go up to close to two. Yep. So I have to be really careful. Like it's really, really hard for me to go about 120 grams of protein a day. And I would love to be 200, 250, but I just can't do it. My, my, well, my, my kidneys won't tolerate it. Well, let me, let me, I think that's a great question. So, I mean, just this perspective, again, given my dimension, six, five, 250 yeah. or so. I eat, you know, routinely about three, sometimes four pounds of meat a day. I'm a big guy. I eat a lot. I'm pretty active. What does that transfer in grams of protein? Uh, it's anywhere. It's usually upward of 300 grams of protein a day, typically. So, I mean, you know, and, and I've not had any issues. And I, I want to address the 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 the, the uh, serum creatinine uh, thing because I think it's quite important. A lot of people, even physicians, don't understand this. Mm-hmm. It is not unusual to see higher creatinines in big muscular people. We know that it's you know, little legs. Oh, gonna, little, little so creatine. you're thinking it's the creatine in the meat that's causing. The, the well, I mean, it's a, it's a creatinine. It's it's it's, it's di, di, serum creatinine is is an overall reflection of protein transfer and trans transit in the body. So, if you have a high muscle mass, we know we're turning over one to two percent of our muscle mass every day. So, mm-hmm. higher muscle mass translates into higher serum creatinine. Uh, if we are on a high protein diet, same things occurring. And if we're exercising hard and breaking the muscle down more than normal, oh. we're going to see higher serum creatinine. So, what typically I see whenever I see somebody with a high serum creatinine. 
and GFR, you know, the estimated GFR is calculated based on serum creatinine. It doesn't take in body size. It's based on 1.73 sure. uh, meters squared. So I'm like two, two and a half meters squared, you know, when I, when I do mine. So it, they have to, they have to do it. And if you've ever noticed it, you know, <clears throat> whenever you get that, you know, that basic metabolic panel, the creatinine will always say GFR and it'll say African-American. And right, the reason it right. says African-Americans, so African-Americans are assumed to have more muscle mass. And so they get a higher GFR, which is considered better. So what I see, there is, a, there is another test called cystatin C. Mm-hmm. And it is an alternative way to assess GFR. And it doesn't involve protein or protein turnover. It's complete, but it still assesses kidney function in an estimated way, unless you want to measure it directly. But just as an estimate. Um, anytime I have somebody with a high serum creatinine, I tell them to get a cystatin C, and it's almost always normal. And their GFR recalc, like for instance, mine, if you cut like my, re- my di- I just did this the other day. If I calculate my GFR based on creatinine, it's like 56, which is considered low. I calculate it based on cystatin C because my, my uh, creatinine was like 1.92 last time I checked. But if I, if I calculate 1.92. Yeah, 1.92. Wow. Uh, this is, you know, this is, uh, you know, th- but when I calculate the same number based on cystatin C, my GFR comes up around 124 mm-hmm. instead of 56. So there, and then I've had my, you know, microalbumin and check directly for protein. And it's been mm-hmm. negative. So I would just, I would just, as an experiment, check side by side, get a cystatin C and get a, get a, and get the GFRs measured both through serum creatinine and cystatin C. You probably will find that, um, you know, your, your kidney function is, is better than you think it is. And if you look in the literature, cystatin C versus GSR, GFR, the pros and cons, um, I mean, you'll understand why. I mean, it's just, it's most people aren't exposed to it. And, and, and most nephro- many nephrologists understand this because uh, there have been people that have come to me and said, I'm doing the carnivore diet, I feel great, but my primary care physician is worried about my kidneys because my creatinine went up, and he's sending me to the nephrologist. And I said, well, you know, that's fine, go see what he has to say, but I would get a cystatin C, and so they've done that. And the nephrologist says, well, how the hell do you know to do this? And they said, get out of here, there's nothing wrong with you. So, I mean, that's just something to consider. It may be that, you know, it may be that your kidneys are, in fact, compromised, but it may not be. It may be that, uh, you know, that's just protein, and protein doesn't damage kidneys. I don't know if you, I don't know, if you know that. That's what, I hear. that's what I've heard. There's a lot of people who are suggesting that in the literature. Well, I mean, in the, Bre- the Brenner hypothesis from 19- the 1980s, he, he did studies on rats and mice and showed that feeding them high-protein diets led to glomerular damage. Unfortunately, that doesn't carry, carry over to humans. Stu Phillips, who's one of the top protein researchers in the world has done a nice paper 2018 talking meta-analysis review of, of high protein versus low protein diets no difference whatsoever in kidney function and uh david unwin who's in the uk has done a nice study on diabetics with compromised kidney function you know you know stage one stage two chronic re- renal insufficiency and he's seen them reverse by going on higher protein diets and, and just removing the garbage so that's an interesting uh observation so i would i would check a cystatin c yeah, I've done that twice, the cystatin C, and both times it was elevated. Now, do you need to use the cystatin C uh, to recalculate the GFR, or is that just an alternative to looking at the GFR? So that's an all, you know, again, again, this is both of these are estimated GFRs. And so, you know, an estimate is just an estimate. It's not an actual direct measurement. And so the right. GFR, so, you know, my experience is then if, if a creatinine-based GFR shows a low number, the cystatin C will show a higher GFR. So they can you can calculate your GFR based on cystatin C. If it hasn't done, use it, it's automatically done. There's a formula for it. You can just look it up and type in what okay. your cystatin C is. Yeah. You put in your height and weight and, and then Okay, it yeah, I did not do that. I didn't do the second phase of that, so that might be helpful. But it makes perfect sense if you have the understanding that your body 
wants to be healthy as long as you're giving it what it needs and you're not, you're avoiding items that tend to destroy itself. So that's the basic concept. And then the other thing is that if you have more muscle mass and if you're eating more meat, because their creatine is in the meat and creatine, it's converted to creatinine. And, and you'll see that because I take, a, I can't take more than a gram or two of creatine. I think it's one of the best. And, and you should comment on this too, because you're certainly more than well qualified to uh, best supplements you can take overall to increase muscle mass is creatine, but I can't take it because it was my perceived impact on it's on my, my uh, kidney function. Well, I mean, you're, you're certainly right in the fact that creatine is one of the research studies that shows a, a decent level of efficacy for athletic performance. But beyond that, it's shown, uh, you know, cardiac health, brain health. It's got more, more roles in just helping you put on muscle. But again, I wouldn't take creatine in my case because I'm, I'm consuming so much in, in diet, you know, so it's not necessary for me. Now, if you're on a, a, a plant-based diet or a vegan diet, creatine is going to have a huge benefit on you and your ability to perform athletically. Uh, so, you know, it's, it, it's beneficial in that regard. But again, I, I, I don't know that, you know, a serum creatinine based measure of uh, kidney function in the context we're talking about is necessarily indicative of kidney, kidney disease. I think it's, I think okay. it's, I'm inclined like, to believe you. Yeah. Uh, and it's, this is really an unexpected encouraging bit of news for me personally. So it, it really helped shift my perspective on this. And uh, there's not yeah. many people better qualified than you to do that with your experience. Well, I've just seen it so often. And it's like I said, it's it's something that most physicians are unaware of. That is, you know, you know, like I said, we're, we're, we're just trained a certain way and it's all reflex. You know, it's, as you know, the modern medical appointment is, you know, 15 minutes, seven minutes of which is spent staring at the computer and just, you know, getting people in as quick as possible because you got to generate revenue. And the only way you can do that is seeing massive volumes of patients now. Yeah. So, you know, interestingly, I, because I was, had this concern about eating too much protein, uh, cause, and I definitely would have liked to put at least another 50, 75 grams a day. Uh, I, I needed calories. If I have less than 3000 calories, I start losing weight because I, I exercise so, so much. I'm sure you're, the, you're, you're, what's your minimum calories? Is it 5,000 calories, 4,000? Well, I mean, I think I'm in maintenance slightly over 4,000 calories, you know, 4,000. Yeah. So, you know, so maintenance I mean, for me is three. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't spend a lot of time exercise. I mean, when I exercise is very intense and it's very deliberate and I'm very efficient at it, but I'm not spending three or four hours a day in a gym. I'm, you know, 30, 45 minutes and I'm out. Typically. That's still a lot compared to the average American. Well, yeah, to the average American, but it's not, you know, it's not like a marathon runner spending. Yeah. Like you mentioned, there's there's definite uh, negatives to being running all the time. <laughs> so, what is your typical? Why don't you walk us through a, an abbreviated version of your typical w- week workout? I'm I'm curious. Uh, well, it, again, it depends. Like I, I started doing jujitsu right now, so I, I mean, oh. I, I kind of focused on that. So I started. I'm kind of you know, just doing these. I, I pick different sports. I do something for about five, six, seven years, and then I get bored of it, and then I switch to another yeah, sport. Yeah. Well, it's, a, it's a great self defense tool for sure. You know, it is. It's wonderful. So if you don't fun. need self defense with your your physical characteristics, well, I mean, I I, yeah, I don't usually have people coming up to me to to attack me or anything like that. But I mean, it's just fun. It's just it's ah. just. I like I enjoy it for the mental and and. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, this, this, this mental challenge to it. But I think for me, I mean, I like to just in general in the week, I think there's certain areas we need to focus on. Like you'd mentioned strength training, muscle hypertrophy is extremely important. So, you know, two or three days a week, I will, I will focus on that. Um, I will also focus on conditioning. I think, you know, cardiorespiratory 
fitness is important. So I usually do some sort of, you know, sprint interval training, high intensity interval training, something like that. So I've got air bike, rowing machines, uh, you know, run sprints, something like that. That's a couple times a week, depending on, you know, weather and where I'm located. And then the other thing I do, which many people neglect, particularly get older, is I, is I focus a lot on um, what I call explosive type training, where I do jumping or th- you know mm. throwing, or where I just move myself explosively. So I'll, I'll do uh, something that's something called post-activation potentiation, where you lift the heavy weight and you go directly into a jump, like within a second or two. You just and you just kind of combine those things to maintain a level of you know springiness in your body, so that um, you know I, you know I, I love you know I don't know if you're familiar with pa- Pavel Tatsalin, but uh, sure. he's a yeah, so I mean, one of the one of the things he wrote, which I thought was hilarious, you know, he talks about, you know, the need for everybody to stretch and warm up and dynamite before they can do anything, and you know, it's like you know, you go out in the wild and uh, a fox is going to chase a rabbit. Well, the rabbit doesn't say, "Excuse me, time out. I need to stretch and foam roll," and so they just <laughs> they take off and sprint. You look at little kids; they just take off and they can start sprinting. When we look at like mortality, like if I were to line a hundred people up, uh, regardless of age or health condition, I said, go run a hundred meters. And I would say everybody that can run in under 15 seconds is going to live at least another 30, 40 years. And everybody that can't is going to live, you know, depending how slow they are, is getting closer and closer to death. And it's, I know it sounds goofy, but interesting in nature, you know, in nature, you know, what animals get picked off? You know, what is the lion? The lion's going to hunt, hunt the slow, the slow, weak ones. That's who they're going to, that's going to be the prey. And I think the same token, you know, when we get slow and, and weaker as we age, we're just closer to, to death. And so I think the longer you can maintain that youthful physical capacity, you know, the more likely you're going to live. It's intuitively obvious, but I think it's important. You know, it's, it'd be interesting if we measured that as physicians, but we can't, you know, you, you can imagine mm-hmm. <laughs> taking people in your clinic and saying, all right, go run 100 meters. You, you know, I'm sure there'd be all kinds of lawsuits about that. But that, 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 I think that, because, you know, you think, what does it take for me to run 100 meters in 15 seconds? Well, I can't be too fat. I can't be too weak. I can't be too cardiovascularly unfit. I can't have too much joint inflammation. You know, if I don't have any of those things, then I can perform better. And so, I mean, it's, you know, it's strange how we focus on, you know, LDL cholesterol. And like, there's so many better things you can, you can literally be measuring when it comes to, you know, overall quality of life and likely lifespan. Yeah, it's likely the, the premier, absolute supreme, best anti-aging intervention you could do is exercise. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would say. There's no question. And we, I mean, you I, and I both got that at an early age. We understood that. I don't know how we did it, but we did. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's some, you know, and it's interesting because some people just like it, you know, when you're a kid, you like running around and playing and being fast and all that stuff. And then some kids just don't like it. And I think, unfortunately, kids, particularly today, I mean, you know, when I, I'm sure when you grow, I had the fat kid in the neighborhood, the fat kid, there was only one kid. It was everybody else was. And now today that's, you know, like something like, I don't know, 20, 25% of our kids are now obese, 40% are overweight, something ridiculous. And those kids never get to feel experience what it feels like to function physically well and so they spend their whole life avoiding it because they're not good at it and that just you know that that just compounds itself and so i mean fortunately for whatever reason i think more luck than anything else you know just kind of fell into that and enjoyed that but it is incredible i think you know exercise nutrition and sleep you know those are my top three things you know everything else is kind of icing on the cake but if you don't get those things straightened out you know good luck Good luck, because you're not gonna you're not gonna take a pill to, you know, do what you can do for exercise. Although they're trying to make an exercise pill, I'm sure you've you've heard of that. They're trying to come yeah, up. it's just it's just like right. an anti-obesity pill. You know? Right, right. Yeah. Um, so, do you have those are your top three? Do you have any favorite biohacks that you do to optimize your health? Um, 
Gosh, I mean, I do like you mentioned. I like getting out in the sun. I mean, I think that's important. I mean, I'm obviously, I was a species. We were raised. <laughs> we weren't raised. What, in, what were you? In, in, uh, what's that? What What did you say you were? No, I said as a I, like getting out in the sun. I think is important. Oh, okay. you know, and okay. I think as a species, we oh, species okay. species we weren't raised inside in the dark inside cubicles and in climate controlled environments, which almost so, everyone is doing nowadays. Right, almost I mean, everyone. They just don't get outside. As you probably aware, um, some people I've seen this reported anecdotally. You know that they have better sun tolerance when they clean up their diet. You know when they stop putting in all the processed garbage, maybe the seed oils, maybe the excess sugary food. Yeah. Their, their sun tolerance gets better. And so I think, you know, that's good. I mean, I've played with obviously cold and, and heat, you know, sauna and, and cold things. And I, and I do those from time to time. And I think they're, they're conditionally beneficial. You know, I'm sure you're familiar with the concept of hormesis. And so I think that's all there. I think those things are important. Yeah, I, my particular favorite is that is a near infrared sauna because 40% of the frequencies that come out of the sun are near infrared. I mean, the UVB that makes vitamin D is only 7%. So uh, that's why I'm a big fan of near, not far infrared saunas, because they really replicate sun exposure. And in some ways could do it. I don't know if you've played with this, Sean, but uh, I've reached the conclusion. I'm sure you're familiar that red light panels, like with red and near infrared can help mitigate against DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness, uh, especially when you're doing legs. Uh, but I played with that for a while. I would use it routinely, but, and I only was able to get like 70, 80% in, improvement. But once I went into a near infrared sauna, which is just recently in the last few weeks, um, it mitigates it hundred percent. It almost like it melts away all the inflammatory mediators and none of the, ben- none of the benefits are obliterated. Like you can get the same benefit by walk or jumping into a cold pool, but then you won't get the, the, uh, the, the results of the exercise improving your health because right. it, it decreases those inflammatory uh, uh, markers, uh, cytokines and myokines. But the, uh, the, the heat just augments it. It's just amazing. So it's just, oh, I just love it. Near yeah, infrared. I've got, I've got an infrared panel as well. And I, I found it, you know, it helped me with my sleep and recovery a little bit. So I think for sure there's something there. And yeah, I've but got- the sauna itself where you get the near infrared, yeah. And you go get up to like 160 or so for 20 minutes. Oh, yeah. I, I, do you have, do you have any severe doms after some of your workouts? I, um, rarely quite honestly. Now, I mean, interesting, I, interesting, you know, Carnivore, I mean, Carnivore solved it. It helps. It does help with that. And I think it's something that's something that I hear from a lot of people saying is, Hey, I recover better. And that's the thing I can train intensely, you know, even at 56, you know, it's going to be 56 day after day after day without too much issue. I mean, it's, it's rare, you know, like I said, sometimes in jujitsu, I get a little banged up, you know, you know, it's, as you might imagine, I'm usually wrestling with 25 year old collegiate collegiate wrestlers. And so, you know, <laughs> 270 pounds and, you know, so I get a little, I'm a little sore after that. And so, but yeah, generally, I mean, outside of that, I'm able to train every day. I think, I think the diet helps. I think, you know, I, I just think it's a little less oxidizing on the body. You know, I think for, for, from a dietary standpoint, you know, and I think yeah, you just sure. less of these reactive oxygen species. Yeah, and you're, yeah, you're right with the uh, carnivore with respect to decreasing the, the damages from the sun, because when you get sunburn, it's usually what's oxidizing is the linoleic acid that's embedded in the, in the membranes that, that are, are causing the damage. And when you have less of that, you're not going to, you'll be far less likely to get sunburn and secondary cancer, which is even more important. Certainly uh, uh, basal cell carcinomas and squamous cells. Right. So that's really, really huge. So, um, well, 
this has been terrific. I mean, you are such an anomaly. It is such a pleasure to find a physician who is as fit as you are uh, and really doing Which the things. That. That I, mean, that's, that's a, I think that's such a sad thing to find physicians that are, that are, that are, you know, I know. I get it. <laughs> I mean, it seems like, you know, why would you take advice from a, you know, a, a plumber who's got toilets leaking all over the house. I mean, it, you know, I, I know there's some people like, well, you don't have to be a, you don't have to be a player to be a coach, but at the same point, you know, if you can't figure out how to take care of your own health, are you expected to? I think that's the thing. Physicians aren't expected to promote health or expected to, you know, here's a pill, you know, which is unfortunate. Yeah. So I'm really excited about your new company. That's going to be available early next year. Uh, and maybe we could have you back on to discuss more of that specifically when it's available, but we'll definitely, uh, give us the information so we can put it in the article so that people can access that because that's what we need. It's exactly what we need. That's the solution that we need to this craziness. And, uh, I think largely because you're fit and because you're eating the right food, your critical thinking skills were preserved. And we didn't, although we didn't discuss this, I'm pretty confident you did not buy into the COVID bullcrap the narrative and the jab and never got jabbed right i, I didn't i didn't in my family yeah i didn't think so you're just too damn smart for that well i mean it's you know i i just i just saw some of the nonsense from the beginning and it was just like you know what you know this masking stuff is i mean <laughs> telling people put t-shirts around their face i mean i wore masks as a surgeon for my whole career i didn't mind it i was like yeah but i wasn't wearing it to prevent a respiratory virus between me and the patients i mean in fact the studies this I'll, I'll just make this point. It's, it's funny because people would say, well, you know, what are you going to do if the surgeon doesn't wear a mask? I said, well, you know, actually the studies on surgical side infections show no difference overall between mask and not mask wearing. It's usually to keep blood and crap out of your own face and up your nose and in your mouth and in your eyes. That's why you wear it as yeah. a surgeon, not to pre- prevent somebody from getting a viral infection. So I thought it was just nonsense the whole time. And uh, you know, as you know, as as a result, as we've seen two years later, now that the the companies have their legal liability shield, getting in on the that child vaccine schedule, and there's no real liability to them. Now the data is going to come out that it didn't do well, and you know maybe some people had side effects that were were higher than than what was being told, and it's you know unfortunately yeah side effects uh, like yeah <laughs> right 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 that's that's, that's kind of that's it's kind of inconvenient yeah you know i mean you did mention i think this is interesting because I, I have seen them talking about a cholesterol vaccine you know where they can target the oh yeah the, the any they, crazy they, thing for sure well they're going to recommend childhood vaccines against cholesterol or something i could see that as a potential you know potential issue down the road we'll see how that plays out i don't know that that is as bad as a, a a COVID vaccine for an infant, <laughs> which they authorized. Yeah, that makes it's sense. Just, it's makes, just they're they're, zero, they're they're literally at zero risk for for you know yeah. almost as close to zero as you can get. So it doesn't make sense. So anyway, we can go on forever with that. But I really uh, thank you for the courage and the bravery of, uh, to have the courage of your convictions and uh, you know be really one of the earliest adopters. And it's from your explanation. You know, aside from that Facebook group that you seem to have been mentored in this, you're really the first uh, physician professional who's advocated this. And as a result, like the first in many, many fields, you, you took a lot of arrows. Yeah, I have. I have. And I still did get some and I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine with that. You know, like I said, it's at the end of the day, the nice thing, and I'm sure you've seen, you've had a lot of detractors and critics, but the, just, the a, number, just a few, just a few, but I mean, the number of people that you, that benefit from you or, or from, you know, likewise, what I see is so much bigger. I mean, I, I, you know, of all the criticism I get, I get, I get a hundredfold. Hey, I'm, I'm glad you're doing what you do because you've helped me. And that, that's, that, yeah. that makes it easy. 
Well, it's good. I'm really glad you're out there and it's been, it's, it's made an enormous difference. Probably at least I would say exponentially higher than you think it, you have um, because you just don't know the impacts you're having. So, or it had indirectly because right. of what you're- Well, I mean, it's, it, you know, early on, I realized that, you know, I, I just tell people, hey, you guys need to spread this out. It needs to be, it needs to be horizontal growth rather than one person vertically growing. Yeah, yeah, and for sure. Now there are thousands and thousands of people espousing this, this nonsense, I guess some people want to call it nonsense, but it's growing and you're right, it's a grassroots movement. We're not going to, the government's not going to adopt healthy diet mm. and lifestyle. They're not going to do that. Corporations, it's not in their, it's not in their, their business interest to do it. So it's got to be on the people that's going to do it. And this is how we, uh, we, uh, we change things, you know, a little by well, little. I, I'm really grateful for your courage to get out there and spread the word and start it and, and being a, being a model for so many other physicians that they could, uh, obviously they're not going to be able to uh, reach the level of physical fitness that you have because of your just your physical characteristics, but they can get close at least yeah. with their frame. So, well, I've right. seen, I've seen tremendous people and, and I've seen a, a number of physicians. I remember like when I started doing this, a lot of physicians were watching me like, what's this crazy guy doing? And then I got my coronary artery calcium scan. It was zero. And they're like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> it was really, you know, cause I was public and put this stuff out there. You know, one of the first guys yeah. to do that. And uh, there's another physician, Paul Mabry who started this, but he's, no one's heard of Paul. He's a nice guy. He's in, he's in uh, Rio Rancho, New Mexico, and he 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 was a physician that adopted this, but he he didn't really get out there and talk about it very much. And so I, I by fortune, just my personality, I don't mind talking. I'm a big guy. I don't. I'm not. I'm not intimidated. And so I'm just like you know, I don't care. <laughs> you know, basically. Yeah. Well, that's the that's the attitude you have to have. Yeah. Exactly. You have yep. the thick skin and yep, for uh, sure. really. Uh, not be as influenced by any of the criticisms. Yeah, I mean, it's the sticks and stone stuff. You know, I've had, you know, I've, I was in Afghanistan, people bombing at me. I was, you know, I've, I've had people <laughs> punch me in the face before. So it's like, yeah, this is, not, this is no big deal. It's not that big of a deal. And it's all worth it in the end. So I really appreciate the opportunity to connect the dialogue with you, especially your insights on the creatinine, creatinine, which is really, it's going to have a profound personal impact on me. So I appreciate yeah, that. Check it out. Check it out. I'd be interested to see how it goes with you, but I, I would, I would calculate your GFR based on cystatin okay. C and see what that does. All right. Well, thanks so much. Appreciate all you're doing. Appreciate it, Dr. McCullough. Thank you for, thank you for what you're doing, by the way. All right.